Today's episode is brought to you by Audible, the internet's best source for audiobooks and audio entertainment. Go to audibletrial.com slash deep into history to get your free audiobook download. If you want to know more about today's topic, I highly recommend the book Legion vs. Phalanx. It's a history book that's far more entertaining than most fiction. That's audibletrial.com slash deep into history. The best part is if you decide to cancel within 30 days, you'll get to keep your audiobook for free. Once again, that's audibletrial.com slash deep into history. Sign up today. This is Deep Into History, and I'm your host, Arjun Hundle. I want to introduce you to the subject of this episode in the same way that I discovered him many years ago. I'm going to ask you to take a moment to take a trip of the imagination and just dream with me. Ready? Then let's go. It's the year 193 BC. You're in an almost offensively opulent palace in the city of Susa, the old heart of the Persian Empire. Now the first city of the Seleucid Empire, home to the royal court of Antiochus III, king and near god to millions of subjects. His kingdom is one of the four great successor realms that emerged from the rivers of blood spilled after the death of Alexander the Great. You are an envoy for a warlord from the Far East, here to treat with the great king. All around you, Greek is the spoken language. As you don't understand this foreign tongue, you've been appointed a translator. You are sitting on a luxurious cushion covered in silk so fine that each one is worth a small fortune in silver. You are at the far end of a very long table, at the head of which sits the king, and on either hand, two very esteemed guests. You have heard their names, as everyone in the world knows of the exploits of Hannibal of Carthage, the nemesis of the Romans, and the man that finally defeated him and brought mighty Carthage to his knees at the Battle of Zama seven years ago, the highly esteemed Scipio Africanus, former consul of Rome, the two most famous warriors in the world, in the flesh. Your interpreter informs you that Hannibal was exiled from Carthage after the Great War due to pressure from this very Roman and now resides as an honored exile at this court. Scipio is here to settle a dispute with the king, yet both he and Hannibal are completely ignoring the monarch and icily staring at one another. Scipio's arrogance comes off him in waves, and the glare from Hannibal's one eye seems to contain all the wild anger of his defeated continent. The tension between the titanic personality spreads, and soon the crowded room is filled with silence, all eyes on the pair, all ears trained to catch their words. It's as if the bejeweled and garishly clad monarch, the long table filled with every imaginable delicacy, the dozens of servants, and the hundreds of onlookers fade away as if they don't exist. It's just the two generals. There is the barest hint of a nod between them. Scipio asks something, and Hannibal gives a long answer. Your translator whispers in your ear. Africanus asks who, in Hannibal's opinion, are the greatest generals of all time. Hannibal named Alexander, the king of the Macedonians, first, because with a smaller force he routed armies many times larger, and no one has ever conquered more lands or more peoples and traveled to the very ends of the earth. Africanus asked who was the second greatest general. Hannibal named Pyrrhus of Epirus because he was the first to teach the art of making an army camp properly and no one ever chose ground more discriminatingly to place his forces. He also had the art of winning men over to his side so that the Italian people preferred to serve him, a foreign king, rather than the Roman people. Africanus asked who was third. Hannibal named himself and the silence in the room resumed. You've never heard the name before. You ask your translator who this Pyrrhus is a brilliant general who defeated Rome in two major battles and vanquished every force Carthage put in his way, he replies. Tell me more, you say. A commander of such caliber that even in defeat his enemies came to respect him immensely. More, you say. A hero who fought in the front lines of every battle and proved invincible in combat. Tell me everything, you growl, frustrated at the translator's one-liners. A cousin of Alexander who led an army into Italy and conquered all who opposed him, yet proved unable to capitalize on his victories. You grab the man and shake him violently and say, tell me everything, you fool. 
an adventurer who never knew when to quit when he was ahead, a warrior who belonged in the Age of Heroes in the time of Achilles and Hector and the fall of Troy, a warrior who never lost a duel, though he fought hundreds of them, a warrior whose prowess was so great in battle that men called him the Eagle because he was like a great raptor that could strike anywhere on the battlefield and always seemed to be able to turn the tides of war in his favor. Translator goes silent and... Your eyes dart back to the pair of generals as Scipio laughs and says, What would you say if you had defeated me? Your translator translates. Then beyond doubt, Hannibal replies, I should place myself before Alexander and before Pyrrhus and before all other generals. You see Scipio smile and nod arrogantly. Yet you can't help but allow yourself the smallest smile at the backhanded compliment Hannibal had just delivered with such sly nuance. You see that though Hannibal has just acknowledged that he and Carthage lost to the man, in no way he did he recognize him as one of the greatest of all time. Under your breath, you allow yourself a quiet chuckle. Let the palace fade away, come back to reality, and hear me say, This is the tale of a man living in the shadow of the greatest conqueror the world had ever known, who shared his blood, and above all, a desire to outdo him. The tale of a war that becomes the warm-up match that indeed sets the stage for the titanic struggle that would see who would rule the Mediterranean world once and for all. A tale that inspired the greatest sci-fi battle in history. A tale of a warrior forged in the crucible of the greatest civil war the ancient world had ever known, who fought so expertly and with such devastating effect that in those moments, for his allies, it was as if Alexander fought with them, Achilles reborn. So take a deep breath, let it out slowly, and just chill to the next episode as we go deep into the year 280 before the Common Era and the wars of Epirus of Epirus. This is the story of how he became forever after known as the enemy of Rome. Welcome to a series of very Pyrrhic events. The world Pyrrhus of Epirus was born into had been dominated by a giant of history, a legend in his own time, who was worshipped as a god by tribes in the east, because just before Pyrrhus was born, Alexander of Macedon walked the earth, and had conquered the known world. His relatively small but professional army had utterly destroyed the vast multitudes of the Persian Empire. Macedonia now controlled Greece, Egypt, Babylon, Anatolia, Persia, Bactria, and the fertile Punjab. Alexander had turned the relatively small kingdom into a massive empire with hundreds of millions of subjects in just 12 years, and in those same years had gone from king to emperor to god, worshipped by millions. To his battle-weary army and its commanders who had followed him across the world and into faraway India, enough was enough. They had beaten every foe, through conquest were now all rich men, who had not seen their homeland in over a decade. All they wanted to do was go home. Faced with mutiny, Alexander was grudgingly forced to turn around and march back to Babylon. Rumors of a new power rising in the west had reached his ears, and most experts agreed that he had his sights set on conquering mighty Carthage and punishing a young upstart nation that was troubling the Greek colonies in what was then called Magna Graecia, which meant Greater Greece, the upstart being the Republic of Rome. Alas, we'll never know what Alexander would have done, because after a few days of feasting and drunken parties, after his return to Babylon, he fell into a coma. Days later, surrounded by his generals, in his royal chambers, Alexander opened his eyes. They begged him to name a successor or give instructions as to who would lead his empire after him. Legend says Alexander whispered, I leave it to the strongest. He closed his eyes and then he died. This set off a series of wars called the Wars of the Diadochi, his generals, or more poetically, the funeral games, for control of the vast empire. The death of this giant of history sent the ancient world into the chaos of a seemingly unending war of intrigue, assassinations, death, and revenge. Two years after this, with the massive wars underway, our prince is born in Epirus, modern Albania. His aunt was Olympias, Alexander's mother, in my opinion the true lion of Macedon. 
While Alexander was away fighting, she ruled Macedonia and Greece. Olympias ruled expertly and was both loved and feared. Most people think of Alexander as Philip II's son. Know that he was no less Olympias's, a formidable woman who raised an even more formidable son on the tales of her family's descent from Neoptolemus, son of the legendary Greek warrior Achilles. The infant prince looks to be in for a charmed life, except after Alexander's death the war spreads and Epirus, like so many peripheral kingdoms, is inevitably pulled in. Pyrrhus's father, the king, agrees to aid his cousin Olympias and becomes the enemy of many other factions. The wars of the Diadochi are extremely complicated and indeed convoluted. It would take many hours to explain its twists and turns, so I'll stick to how it affects our hero Pyrrhus. Another classic deep into history contextual nutshell for you. In punishment for invading Macedonia with Olympias, Epirus is invaded and his family is sent into exile. The two-year-old baby Pyrrhus is smuggled out of the country by loyal servants and taken to the north to the king of the Illyrians, who rejects massive fortunes for his death. In this time, anyone who shared blood with Alexander was in extreme danger. The king took a liking to the baby prince and decides to raise him among his own children. Pyrrhus is trained in ancient wisdom, Greek philosophy, the Iliad, and the arts of war. He excelled at combat with sword, shield, and spear and learned battlefield tactics. He is so impressive that he proves himself in battle at age 12. This prompts his benefactor to send an army with him and install him as the rightful king of Epirus. The ties of the Great War ravaging the Greek world turn, causing him to lose control of the kingdom. He ends up in the service of the King of Macedon and fights in the ultimate battle of the funeral games when he is 17, the Battle of Ipsus. This battle will get the deep into history treatment soon. Let's just say it was one of the largest and most decisive battles in ancient history. All the major players were there. It's one of those rare battles that settle many old scores. The forces arrayed on each side are of epic proportions and more to the point exceptional quality. Nearly every soldier there had fought and survived many major battles, except Pyrrhus who's leading a small contingent of a pirate cavalry among a much larger wing. During the titanic battle, Pyrrhus led charge after charge fearlessly. He was an exceptionally gifted warrior and led his formation to devastating effect. Though his side lost the battle, even his enemies on the battlefield said that he fought like Alexander reborn. In the aftermath, he was taken as hostage for the losing side's good behavior to Egypt. There he was treated with honor and respect by Ptolemy, Alexander's bastard brother, general, and now king of his own realm. Pyrrhus wowed the royal court of Egypt with displays of arms, winning duel after duel, and won the affection of his captors, so much so that he was given the hand of Ptolemy's daughter, along with a massive dowry which he used to reclaim the throne of Epirus. His homeland consisted of a small part of northwest Greece and much of modern Albania. It was a land dominated by one very large tribe, the Molazians, with many smaller tribes. These tribes, though somewhat ethnically different, were bound together culturally. They spoke accented Greek, worshipped the Greek gods, and embraced Greek philosophy. The tribes were considered barely above barbarians by mainland Greeks because they lived in small towns and hundreds of villages instead of cities. And though somewhat rustic, Epirus still had some very famous temples that drew devout pilgrims from all over the Greek world. First among these was the Necromantion of Acheron, a temple devoted to Persephone and Hades, god of the underworld. It was said to be built on the doorway to the afterlife, and that its priests could channel the thoughts and desires of the dead so that the living could converse with them. Pyrrhus became a devotee and patron of the temple and always consulted the necromancers, which allowed him to speak with the likes of Alexander and Achilles before making any major decisions. We must understand that to the ancient Greeks, their gods were real and part of everyday life. Books like Homer's Iliad and Odyssey were seen as history and consulted for wisdom the way religious people do today with any of the holy books. Having access to the necromancers and through them, the advice of long-dead heroes would have been seen as a huge advantage for Pyrrhus, and the kings of Epirus jealously guarded access to them. Over the next few years, his fame increased immensely as he won battle after battle. In one such battle in Macedon, he was challenged to single combat by a famous warrior. 
He agreed only if the duel was binding and would settle the war then and there. The terms agreed, they fought on a field between their two gathered armies. Pyrrhus's skill at arms was second to none. He slew their champion with ease, and afterwards both sides cheered. Many of the Macedonian troops decided to join him after witnessing his skill, wishing to serve this new Alexander. He even became king of Macedon for a short time before being forced to abdicate by greater powers. As we approach the year 280 BC, the Greek world has stabilized, with large and strong successor kingdoms carved out of Alexander's empire, Epirus being a small kingdom on the western fringes of that world. This is when the royal court start receiving embassies from Tarentum, a Greek city-state in Magna Graecia. That's the south of Italy, the shoe if you will, and the ball it's kicking, Sicily. It translates to Greater Greece and was considered the frontier of their world, full of small and large Greek colonies. Though independent from their original homeland, they were ethnically and culturally the same people. Sicily is where the Greek world traded and constantly warred with the empire of Carthage. The ambassadors came with a plea for help against a new power rising in Italy, the Republic of Rome. Rome had just come through decades of war and conquered all of central Italy, making allies of or subjugating all the cities it came across, exterminating those who would not assimilate to their new order. Triumphant and honestly provoked by unwise and arrogant Greek cities, Rome had now set its sights on Magna Graecia. To the massive Greek powers, the Romans would have seemed like barbarian upstarts who needed to be taught their place. They didn't treat the threat lightly, however. They decided to send their most famous warrior at the head of a large army. From Egypt came gold soldiers from Macedon, ranged troops from the Greek islands, and from the Seleucids, 20 Indian war elephants, the super weapon of the ancient world. In addition, the powers guaranteed the safety and protection of Epirus for as long as he was away, if Pyrrhus would agree to handle the Romans for them. Pyrrhus, who was now 30, was eager for the extremely rare opportunity of leading a large army almost fully funded by other kings. But first he consulted the Oracle of Zeus at Dodona in southern Epirus, the second most famous in the Greek world besides the Oracle of Delphi. The Greeks believed that the oracles could speak to the gods and get glimpses of the future. We now understand that most of these temples were built on the intersection of fault lines so that the caves in their inner sanctums became filled with hallucinogenic gases through cracks in the ground. The oracle, usually a priestess of the god, in this case Zeus, would inhale deeply and go into a trance. You would then ask your question. Pyrrhus had lavished talents of gold to turn the previously rustic shrine into a religious center of his country. He had built walls and a beautiful temple for the oracle and many other shrines, making it an attraction for the entire Greek world. As a chief benefactor, the king of Epirus would have been ushered past the waiting pilgrims and straight to the bowels of the temple to the sacred cave where the oracle would be all undulating in a psychedelic trance, ready to be the conduit between Zeus himself and the king. Bracing himself for anything, because the advice of an oracle could sometimes bring devastating news, Pyrrhus asked what would happen if he carried out his plan. The oracle stopped moving and her eyes shot open, staring directly into Pyrrhus's and said, You, if you cross into Italy, Romans shall conquer. She closed her eyes and resumed her trance. These kinds of cryptic replies to questions asked of the gods were very common. It was rare in the extreme to get a simple yes or no. Pyrrhus took the oracle's prophecy to mean that he would succeed. He quickly rode back to his palace where he summoned his best friend, advisor, and ambassador at large, Seneus, to plan the campaign. Seneus was considered wise and learned by many rulers because he had studied with the great philosophers of the day. It's from their conversations that we know that Pyrrhus thought that he could quickly deal with the Romans and then plan to move to Sicily and rally support from the Greek cities, then attack his true intended target. Pyrrhus wanted to complete Alexander's plan, invade Africa, and conquer the mighty Carthaginian Empire and take over its vast holdings. This was an extremely bold plan. The Tarentine embassy stressed the urgency of the city's danger and made crazy promises to Pyrrhus about the various cities of Magna Graecia raising hundreds of thousands of soldiers and 20,000 cavalry to join him once he landed. It's safe to say that Pyrrhus didn't believe these ridiculous claims. 
Tarentum, though originally Sparta's only colony abroad, had long ago forgotten its warrior traditions. It was now a city of merchants and traders who hired mercenaries to fight their wars. It was decided that Pyrrhus would wait and assemble the various parts of his army, while Cineas would go with a force of 3,000 Iperate infantry to secure and assure Tarentum, and most importantly, get the lay of the land. Pyrrhus assembled his impressive host. The core of the army was 16,000 Epirate and Macedonian phalangites, who were experienced and battle-hearted warriors that fought in the famous Macedonian phalanx, an ancient formation which has evolved from the relatively simple idea of lining up shield to shield, tightly packed, and pushing forward against the enemy while stabbing out with relatively short 8-foot spears, to its current and perhaps most potent iteration. The Macedonian phalanx perfected by Philip II, Alexander's father, was the formation that allowed Macedon to conquer much of the known world. It involved bronze-armored troops in the first few lines, with the ranks behind less expensively armored in layers of heavy linen, still a great defense, with each man wielding an 18-foot pike called a sarissa. It was made of very solid and light wood, most likely cornel, and was topped with an incredibly narrow and sharp spearhead. When thrust at full force, sarissas were known to penetrate shield, armor, and the chest of the opposing warrior, and crucially, because of the design of the thin spearhead, could easily be withdrawn to be thrust again. They carried a circular bronze shield hung around the neck and shoulders that could be managed with the left shoulder and upper arm. This allowed both hands to be kept on the sarissa and greatly increased its punching power. What was so different about the Macedonian phalanx was that the warriors were given personal space. They were not densely packed like the Spartan phalanxes of old. The three-foot gap between men allowed the five ranks behind to lower the sarissas in the gap, making the formation extremely deadly and strong head-on. Imagine trying to pet a porcupine without getting stuck by a quill and you'll have some idea of why this formation was a nightmare for armies from Greece to India. The idea was that the phalanx would act as an anvil, holding an enemy army in place, while the cavalry quickly dealt with the enemy's horsemen, then took the opposing army in the side and rear. Made famous by Alexander's companions, Macedonian cavalry was some of the best in the world. Extremely maneuverable, they famously rode in a diamond formation with an officer at each point that could take command and turn the formation very quickly. They carried long heavy spears and would charge in and out of combat again and again, expertly delivering shock after shock. Pierce had 2,000 of these, with 1,000 lighter support cavalry, astonishingly fast and skilled horsemen. These Thessalians were excellent at pursuing a routed enemy and screening the phalanx's flanks. The problem with the phalanx was that it took a very long time to deploy, and it could only move in one direction, forward. It was extremely vulnerable to attack from the flanks and rear, and could be decimated if attacked anywhere but from the front. To prevent this, the Greeks and Macedonians had developed highly specialized support units designed to protect the phalanx's integrity. In Pyrrhus's army, these included 2,000 archers, perfect for disrupting formations, 500 Rhodian slingers, which fired lethal lead balls, the bullets of the ancient world, each shot potentially deadly, and lest we forget, 20 Indian war elephants, the imperial walkers of the ancient world. Along with a driver called a Mahut from Punjab, they carried a platform on their back called a castle, which carried one spearman and three archers. The war elephant was given wine before battle because war is not in an animal's nature. Once inebriated, it became a deadly instrument of war. Part battering ram, steamroller, and mobile assault tower, it was absolutely devastating when used correctly. It did have a huge downside. When injured badly, the elephants became enraged and would trample friend and foe alike. This was referred to as running amok. When this occurred, the Mohut had to kill the elephant with a large spike driven in with the hammer he carried just for this task. This was only done in extreme cases because the elephants were so valuable. Oh, and rounding out the army, last but far from least, he brought two priests from the Necromantion of Acheron, one to channel Alexander and the other, the ancient great hero from the Trojan War, Achilles, his two most illustrious ancestors. It was their advice that would play a crucial role in the wars to come. 
The presence of the necromancers would strike fear and doubt into the minds of his foes, and they were considered a rare and powerful resource. This was the army that he planned on conquering the West with, a powerful, professional, and lethal force. As Pyrrhus boarded his mighty flagship, the winds of the Adriatic sweeping through his hair to the beach beyond, filled with hundreds of Tarantine transports being packed full with men, horses, and elephants, his army, he must have thought nothing could stop his plans, his conquests, and his eternal glory. He led the most lethal version of this type of army the Greek world had ever produced, tempered by centuries of innovation and hardened by decades of civil war. The confident man, powerful king, peerless warrior, now had what he had always dreamed of, an army as capable in battle as he was in single combat. There was just a small matter of the barbarians, for that was how he saw the Romans, in Italy troubling the Greek cities, and then he would be free to reach for his destiny, to take on the power of Carthage and turn the west into to his empire and equal the deeds of his cousin Alexander the Great. Little did he know that the Macedonian way of war was about to face its ultimate test, a new style of making war, a style that allowed this small city to conquer all the peoples around it, a style adapted to destroy the Greek phalanxes of Magna Graecia, a style that had never faced a famous Macedonian phalanx that had conquered the Greek world, a style that was about to be pushed past its breaking point, the Roman style. Only a day out to sea, Pyrrhus' fleet was struck by a storm which grew more intense as they crossed the Adriatic and neared the Italian shore. Many ships were blown far off course and the fleet was scattered. With only a few dozen ships around his flagship, Pyrrhus was still in the grip of a huge storm, saw the Italian coast in the distance as lightning lit up the dark sky. Some of the flat-bottomed Tarantine transports were blocking his ship's path to the beach, haplessly struck and being buffeted by sea swells. Refusing to give up and with land in sight, Pyrrhus instructed his captain to follow him in and proceeded to jump into the stormy sea and began to swim to shore. If this sounds like an insane decision to you, it's because it is. As our story progresses, you're going to notice a lot of, shall we say, strange or even bizarre decisions at crucial moments coming from Pyrrhus. It only makes sense when you keep in mind that he's constantly being advised by two psychedelic mushroom-chomping necromancers, who he believes are speaking with the voices of Alexander and Achilles, which means when they speak, Pyrrhus listens. Trust me, you're with your friend and lore master Arjun. This is a great story, Pyrrhus is a great warrior, and together we'll discover why men call him the Eagle of Epirus, and he called his men his wind. Our tale only gets crazier after this. I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. I know I enjoy creating them for you. To continue to keep doing this and keep the show relatively ad-free, I need your help. You may have noticed that I had an Audible ad at the beginning of this show. I agreed to put that in because recommending awesome books on the subjects you are hearing about just makes sense. It's completely commission-based, so only when you sign up do I get any credit. Beyond that, I want to keep this show ad-free and fully listener-supported. I don't want to try and sell you socks, mattresses, or meals from sweatshop delivery services. So please go to patreon.com slash deepintohistory to pledge your support. Each month, you'll get an exclusive Patreon-only episode. This March, we'll go deep into the year 301 BC and ride with a young Pyrrhus into the Battle of Ipsus and discover how the young Epirate prince distinguished himself among hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands of cavalry, and 500 war elephants, so greatly that men said it was like fighting along Alexander again. Join me and witness the titanic battle that rocked the ancient world, this March, only on Patreon. Now back to a series of very Pyrrhic events. Pyrrhus swam through the furious storm and made it to shore, and his ships followed him in. The next morning, he took stock of his forces. Pyrrhus had only 3,000 troops, a few dozen cavalry, and two war elephants. The local Greeks welcomed him and gave him guides to reach Tarentum. An easy way to picture Tarentum on a map is the inside of the heel of the boot that is southern Italy. Because, the, because of the storm, Pyrrhus had failed to round the heel and landed on the outside 
When he and his men reached Tarentum a day later, he was greeted by Seneas, his trusted friend, who had brought the vanguard to the city months ago. He informed Pyrrhus that the rest of his fleet had made it through the storm and that his army was intact. This was the only good news he got, however. It seems he had been misled by the Tarentine embassy. Seneas informed him that it was Tarentum that had turned a minor treaty violation by Rome into an act of war by attacking some Roman ships that entered their waters while on their way to aid another Greek city. The Romans had asked for compensation for their losses, but were rebuffed and continually provoked until they decided to declare war on Tarentum. In addition to that, he found the population to be fat and lazy merchants who had no intention of marching to war. These were the descendants of Spartan warriors, but had forgotten their people's warrior code and become traitors and bought themselves lives of excess, indulgence, and splendor. In their minds, Pyrrhus was just another mercenary captain hired to rid them of the Roman nuisance. And to add even more insult to injury, those hundreds of thousands of troops didn't exist. If all of Magna Graecia rose to help Pyrrhus, he could expect only a few thousand infantry and another few thousand cavalry. Naturally annoyed by their lies and attitudes, Pyrrhus waited until his debarking army occupied the city and then proceeded to tell the Tarentines that he was banning all parties, drinking, festivals, and any activities except training for war with Rome. Many of the city's residents left the city in protest to the ridiculous demands of the upstart tyrant, carried out on palaquins by their slaves because they were too fat to ride. Pyrrhus put the rest through the same strict training regimen that his army did daily. In the end, he formed them into de a decent support force for the flank of his phalanx called the White Shields that fought in an older Greek-style phalanx with shorter spears, and a small but very competent contingent of light cavalry scouts. Before long, word reached Pyrrhus that a large Roman army was in Magna Graecia, pillaging its way across the countryside towards Tarentum. His phalanx would be wasted guarding the city and waiting for a siege, so he moved his army out to meet the Romans. The two sides closed in on one another and met near the village of Heraclea. Their armies made camp miles apart, separated by a wide plain with a river running through it. Pyrrhus spied on the Roman camp, which was neatly ordered and formidable with palisades and towers. He remarked to Cineus, I know not what kind of barbarians these may be, but the disposition of this army that I see has nothing of barbarism in it. He dispatched Aeneas as an envoy to treat with the Romans, offering to act as an arbiter between Rome and Tarentum to settle this dispute without bloodshed, also to delay for time, as he had been promised troops from other Greek cities which he told were marching even now. The Roman consul in charge of the army, a man named Livianus, replied that he did not recognize Pyrrhus' authority and he did not fear Pyrrhus' reputation. The Roman officers in the tent roared their approval. Shaking his head at the arrogance of the reply, Seneas turned to leave, and under his breath, with more than a little contempt, the diplomat said, You will. What Seneas and Pyrrhus didn't understand was that the Romans of this era had every right to be arrogant. Rome had just vanquished and subjugated their perennial enemies, the Samnites, in central Italy after decades of warfare. In previous centuries, Rome had been sacked by barbarian Gauls, lost many battles, but had always rebounded by learning from their mistakes and adopting the best tactics of their enemies. Their warrior's ethos was so well described by the final act of their founding myth, where the brothers Romulus and Remus, heroes to the Romans the way that Hercules and Achilles were to the Greeks, while constructing the defenses of their separate settlements, they mocked one another, and when Remus jumped over the very first walls of Rome to show how weak they were, he was met with a sword in a gut from his brother Romulus, killing him. The lesson of this myth being that anything and everything was acceptable in the defense of Rome, even killing your own brother. Originally fighting in the Greek phalanx, it was during their wars with the Samnites that they had copied the enemy's more flexible form of fighting, which could handle many different types of terrain. These were the famous Manipular Legions, which arrayed in on the battlefield in the Quincax, the checkerboard formation. A maniple, a maniple consisted of 120 legionaries, in three rows of 40 men each, with a maniple 
multiple size gap between each unit. This gave the formation incredible flexibility, especially compared to the Greek phalanx. Individual maniples could operate independently from the rest of the line and allow them to reinforce weak points or exploit breakthroughs. On making contact with the enemy, they would close the gaps and fight as a solid line, though still moving and fighting as individual maniples. This way, only one line was engaged at a time, with the second and third lines ready for any surprises on the battlefield. The three battle lines were called the Triple Akis. The first line, 1,200 young and less experienced Hastati. They were lightly armored, carried a gladius, a short stabbing sword, and a scutum, the rounded rectangular Roman shield, which would cover them from shoulder to shin. The second line consisted of 1,200 experienced and heavily armored princeps, men in their prime. Both of the first two lines carried two pila, javelins designed to penetrate the enemy's shields, and then due to being weighted on the rear, would bend, rendering their shields useless. 600 veteran triarii made up the third line, who fought in a more maneuverable Roman-style phalanx, armed as Greek hawkblights with a heavy spear, a round hoplon shield, and a gladius as a weapon of last resort. These men were esteemed as Rome's greatest warriors. The rest of the legion was comprised of 1,200 velites, very lightly armored skirmishers who wore wolf's heads atop their own and screened the formation, peppering enemies with seven light javelins and then retreating through the gaps to let the histadi engage. Finally, 300 Roman cavalry from the noble equestrian class, mostly lightly armored with a spear, shield, and the spatha, a long cavalry sword excellent for dealing with the fleeing, routed enemy. In battle, the legion would conduct itself thusly. The velites would engage the enemy, throwing their spears, then the hastati, first throwing their two pila, and then engaging with scutum and gladius. When tired, the hastati would retreat behind the fresh princeps, who would launch their two pila and charge on to engage. On the rare occasion where the princeps couldn't win the battle, both lines would retreat behind the triarii, who would either act as a holding force to allow an orderly retreat, or as happened more often than not, the elite veterans would turn the tide and win the battle. The Romans had a saying, it has come to the triarii, meaning that the battle was particularly grueling and only Rome's best had a chance of saving the day. Each legion was accompanied by a legion of Allah, consisting of men from allied cities, called Sochii, usually consisting of cavalry, ranged, and support units. The name Allah is where we get our modern word ally from. Thus, a Roman legion with its companion Allah numbered approximately 8,000 men. This is the type of legion that would defeat Carthage and be led by the likes of Scipio Africanus, perhaps the greatest general Rome ever produced. It was an innovative and devastatingly powerful way of making war, and was about to be put to its ultimate test. With their camps miles apart from each other, and no sign of his promised Greek allies, his overtures for a peaceful solution rejected with extreme contempt, Pyrrhus' new battle was imminent. The river Cirrus divided the landscape was only fordable in a small section, so Pyrrhus dispatched his skirmishers, that's the archers and Rhodian slingers, there to scout and to keep an eye on the Roman movements. They were also there to stop any Roman efforts to scout the Epirate camp. When they reached the river, however, they saw that the Romans were forming their lines on the opposite bank. The Romans were coming to attack with their army in full force. This was an emergency, and word was quickly dispatched to Pyrrhus. The Macedonian phalanx was excellent, but it took a long time to form in good order. He needed to buy his army the time it desperately needed. If the Romans trapped them in their camp, or worse, while the phalanx was forming, the phalangites would be massacred. To make matters worse, his skirmishers were now under attack from the Romans and were being sorely pressed. The Roman army, under the command of consul Livianus, was four legions strong, with another Forasaki ally, a force totaling 40,000 men. Pyrrhus ordered all of his cavalry to assemble for battle. The 4,000 horsemen were split into two large groups to attack the forces trying to surround his skirmishers. His companion cavalry was as good or better than Alexander's, although far fewer in number, they were just as devastating in force and impact on the battlefield. 
The reason is they follow Pyrrhus, the greatest warrior since Alexander. The men love him, and he them. They have seen him win dozens of single combats and fought in many more battles beside him. As he rides to the front of his personal formation, the assembled cavalry roars, Eagle! 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 Gleaming in his splendid armor, his purple and gold thread cloak billing out behind him, he replied, If I am your eagle, know that you are the wind that allows me to fly. The army roared their approval at the refrain that had become their battle cry. He put on his spectacular helm, decorated with the horns of the first ram he had hunted as a boy. Eagle's feathers formed to look like wings coming out of the sides. And finally, a long plume of horsehair dyed green on the crest running down his back. He stood out from his men, who wore more or less uniformly plain and utility gear. The truth is he wanted it this way. It was how a Greek hero went to war, easy to find on the battlefield for friend or foe alike. Pyrrhus nodded to his unit signalers, who blew their trumpets to sound the charge. His Iperet and Macedonians formed into smaller 80-man diamond shapes, with an officer at each point. The lighter Thessalians and the Tarentine units screening the heavier companions, their target any ranged units or fast light cavalry that would get in the way of the heavy chargers. The dozens of diamond shapes were aimed at the flanks of the army slingers and archers under heavy attack from the Roman cavalry. At full gallop, they charged in hard. The crash of thousands of men and horses colliding with one another would have been deafening. The first shock of the charge, taking them in the flank, would have routed many enemies, but the Romans quickly regrouped, reformed into a line, and closed to engage with spears at point-blank range, staying in close combat, robbing the companion cavalry of his chief ability of continuous charges and withdrawals, delivering shock after shock. Pyrrhus and his companions were in the fight of their lives. These Romans weren't breaking under his assault. You see, the Romans believed in the divinity of the Republic, and they fought with fanatical skill for their god. It was a foe unlike anything they had faced before, a totally different, perhaps more lethal warrior code. The Romans too had not faced men like this, raised on the Iliad and whose life goal was to fight as well as the Greek heroes in Homer's epic. It is a battle of Greek heroes against Roman knights. Achilles had his Myrmidons, Alexander had his companions, and the Eagle of Epirus had his wind. Not to mention the two hooded and robed necromancers chanting prayers next to the signalers in the center of his formation. I don't know what it would have been like to be in the middle of battle, reality distorted, perhaps enhanced, definitely altered by magic mushrooms, watching the eagle of Epirus and his wind locked in the battle with the most difficult foe they had ever faced. But it might have gone something like this. You and your sworn brother, devotees and high priests of the Necromantion of Acheron, are in the middle of a fight out of legends. You are mounted in the relatively protective center of Pyrrhus's companions, his command unit, his best warriors, his friends, his wind. There is savage fighting all around you. The charge you had just been a part of had taken the Roman cavalry attacking the army slingers and archers completely off guard. The impact and savagery of the attack should have set the Romans to flight. While they did withdraw, it was only a few dozen yards to regroup and attack in a line even though their armor was much lighter than that of the appearance. This could only mean that they were now screening for the Roman legions crossing the river, which was not far away, and their cavalry was to stay in fight to protect them. In the far distance, you hear a high-pitched flute that signals the phalanxes forming. Looking through the press of cavalry, you see three men with the heads of wolves running towards you, about to throw light javelins at the companions. In the moment before they can launch, they fall, struck by lead balls from the slingers Pyrrhus had just saved. The fighting around you grows ever more intense. The screams of injured men and horses, the clangs of metal meeting metal, and the wet sound of metal biting through fresh grow louder and louder. 
the eagle and his wind are the best warriors you have ever fought with. Yet the Romans fight with great skill and fanatical bravery. You and your brother are sitting on chargers in the middle of the group with the king's signalers, and next to you on his mount is Cineus, the envoy, holding a half-knocked bow, two quivers full of arrows on his saddle. His eyes dart around the battlefield. You briefly wonder why he isn't firing, for there is no shortage of enemy targets. Your eyes are drawn to a Roman perhaps fifty yards from you. He is staring at Pyrrhus with hatred in his eyes. In a flash, he is at full gallop, aiming a spear at Pyrrhus's mount. You notice the Roman wears white socks. You wonder why you notice that. You blink. The charging Roman takes Pyrrhus's horse full in the chest, killing the animal. What you witness next should be impossible. Pyrrhus vaults off his stallion before it falls and throws his cavalry spear into the Roman's chest. When he lands, the straps on his shield arm rip, robbing the king of his protection. He tries to retrieve this spear from the body of the dead, but cannot dislodge it quickly. He withdraws his storied sword, the blade of his ancestors, with his right arm. In his left, he picks up and reverses Roman's long cavalry spatha. He knows that seeing him dismounted, every Roman in sight will try to claim the glory of killing the king. In his very conspicuous gilded armor, his purple and gold cloak on his back, and the green crest plume of his helmet hanging down below his shoulder blades. His very unique ram's horns and eagle feathers jutting out from his sides. Your dilated eyes take in everything. Romans from all over the front are rushing to kill Pyrrhus, except they can't. Every Roman who fights Pyrrhus dies. For the briefest second, helm and warrior become one, and Pyrrhus becomes a horned demon, his blades flashing out impossibly fast. The green plume becomes a whirling blur, and it's as if he's a demon hunting the Romans, covered in a ball of green fire with Romans withering in front of him. To your right, Tineus is firing aim shots at amazing speed, covering Pyrrhus's flanks. Megacles, the king's trusted friend and bodyguard, with two warriors ride to his aid, leading a remount to the king. To your left, you hear your sworn brother say, Achilles lives in him. You nod in agreement and say, he is of the blood. And then, it is time, brother. You both dismount, twins in opposites, you in black, fully devoted to Hades, your brother in white, devoted to the goddess Persephone, your god's wife. You both throw back your hoods, revealing the Molassian travel tattoos covering your face, swallow the mushroom stalks you have been chewing, and begin the ritual dance. You see, you don't just channel the dead for Pyrrhus. You are battle priests, loyal only to the royal family of Epirus, the patrons of your temple. In battle, you have a job to do. Call down the wrath for your god. Your brother starts speaking solemnly with the utmost respect while gracefully dancing side to side in a ritual trance. My goddess, most noble lady, your children need you. Innervate the men of Hellas with the powers of spring. Renew and soothe their wounds. Bless the ground that their sandals will always find purchase on firm ground, and that the grasses betray the Romans, causing them to slip and fall as the land beneath their feet experiences the decay of fall. Your dance is awkward, spasmatic, jerky, and completely unnerving to anyone around you. You screech, Hear me, mighty Hades, lord of the underworld. These heroes fight to honor you with the souls of these barbarians. Reach up from the depths of your dark hall and take their souls into your cold embrace. Pull them down, down into your endless purgatory. Guide the swords of your children so that every wound they inflict festers and becomes lethal. Receive all these souls as a sacrifice to your eternal glory. You throw back your head and laugh. Ah! As you believe, you feel your God's presence flow through you and through you spread across the battlefield. At least it might have gone like that. We know from later actions the superstitious Romans were terrified of the necromancers and took great pains to avoid their curses. Remember magic, especially the power of the gods, was real to these men. The fighting is extraordinarily fierce. The horn blast from the distance indicates that the phalanx and the white shields, that's the Tarantine units protecting the flanks, are about to engage the legion. Megacles says, My king, we can't keep this up. 
Plus, I don't like the way these Romans are looking at you. If they keep rushing you like this, Pyrrhus, not even you can keep up this pace. Let us withdraw and switch armor. Let me take the attacks. Pyrrhus reluctantly accepts. They make a fighting withdrawal to the flanks of the phalanx, the Roman cavalry falling closely behind. After they switch armor, Pyrrhus observes the situation on the battlefield. The phalanx and legions are locked in brutal fighting. Roman historian Plutarch writes that over the course of the battle, the legions attack seven times, which means three rotations of the first two lines over the course of a few hours, and finally the battle came down to the triarii. The Romans fought doggedly, almost suicidally trying to chop their way through the forest of razor-sharp spear points. Many make it close enough for their sword work, and the first two ranks of the phalanx take heavy casualties. However, with ranks 16 men deep, they are eager warriors always ready to avenge the fallen comrade and take his spot. This kind of head-on combat was what the Macedonian phalanx was designed to excel at. The problem was that in all previous battles, eventually the enemy would break and run, or the phalanx would pin its enemy in place for the cavalry to attack it in the rear. This was not the case with the legions. They get coming, and it seemed that the fresh rear ranks had the greatest warriors of all. Losses were mounting on both sides, and the noise, the clamor, the screams of dying men, the choking dust, and the stink of death would have been overwhelming. The battle had been going on for a few hours. Pyrrhus with a small bodyguard had been darting in and out of combat all across the battlefield. Wherever he saw a particularly devastating Roman warrior giving his men trouble, he would enter the fray and kill him, then move on to the next, always attacking where his men needed help the most. Word reached him that Megacles, who had been leading his wind, had been killed, and that the Romans had propped up his armor on poles and to show everyone that Pyrrhus, the king of Epirus, was dead. He clenched his teeth. Rage at the death of his trusted friend and bodyguard filled him. He turns to his trumpeters and yells, signal the Mahouts, charge. The necromancers let out a cackling, almost unnatural laughs and point at the Romans and cry, elephants, why not? Prepare to die, Romans. Lord Hades will be full of your souls tonight. <laughs> Trumpets blare, answered by a series of increasingly faint replies in the distance. Pyrrhus mounts and charges to the wing to take command of the companion cavalry. It's almost as if the order was never given. The war elephants had been stationed way behind the army, well out of sight of the Romans. Minutes later, the Romans may have noticed a slight tremor under their feet and thought nothing of it. Soon, though, the sounds of strange trumpeting coming from the horizon would draw Roman eyes. The Romans had never seen, perhaps never even heard of elephants before. The colossal creatures, 12 to 14 feet high at the shoulder, 20 to 25 with the towers on their backs, weighing metric tons upon tons, with their long tusks, trunks swinging side to side would have looked like creatures out of myth. This scene always reminds me of the line, Imperial Walkers on the North Ridge. Just before the Battle of Hoth and Empire Strikes Back, the sense of ominous terror filling you. For good reason. It was Pyrrhus's war elephants that inspired George Lucas to create the ATATs in Empire Strikes Back. When the war elephants hit the Roman cavalry at full charge, horses were thrown into the air and went flying as if they weighed nothing, crushing the Romans they landed on. The trained elephants gored with their tusks, used their trunks to pick up men and hurl them, and were constantly moving, trampling anything that got under their way. The archers, secure in their towers on the elephant backs, shot with deadly accuracy. The Roman horses, unfamiliar with the scent of elephants, became even more terrified than the riders and bolted. The charge of ten elephants on each flank decimated all the Roman units there. Finally free to do what they excelled at, Pyrrhus's cavalry formed up and charged the now exposed Roman legions' flanks. The elephants were sent in a wide arc to attack the center and rear of the legions. The legions were utterly decimated and fled. The immovable phalanx, the necromancer's curses, the unmasked skill of the eagle of Epirus, and the awesome presence of the elephants had finally broken them. The legions were routed. They turned and fled for their lives.
Pyrrhus ordered his Thessalian cavalry to pursue the fleeing legions. Exhausted, men collapsed to the ground as the adrenaline of battle which sustained them for hours left their bodies. Though this was a victory, it may not have seemed like one, because the losses to his irreplaceable phalanx was very high. His cavalry and vital skirmishers had suffered as well. Pyrrhus's army had suffered 4,000 dead to the Romans 7,000. His army had also captured 2,000 Roman prisoners. In the following days, it did begin to look up for Pyrrhus, as the long-promised reforces for Magna Graecia began to arrive. Though not able to fight in the Macedonian phalanx, their numbers at least partially made up for the losses. He decided to send Cineas ahead to Rome to negotiate a peace agreement if possible. To keep pressure on the Romans, he would follow with the entire army. As Cineas traveled north, he stopped at many towns allied to the Romans, where he offered lavish gifts and huge amounts of gold to the leaders to gain their goodwill. All rejected the gifts, telling him nothing was worth earning the wrath of the Romans. Cineas reached Rome and found it to be a very heavily fortified city. Its people, though shocked by the loss, were by no means defeated. Everywhere he went, he saw signs that new legions were being raised, and everyone he talked to spoke only of the next battle with Pyrrhus. The sentiment was that Pyrrhus had defeated the consul Livianus, not Rome. After a loss suffered like that at Heraclea, any other city in the Greek world would be mourning their dead, suing for peace, and begging to ransom back their prisoners. Rome was different. The attitude of Roman virtus, the warrior code of the society, did not allow them to accept defeat. Cineas, ever the skilled diplomat and persuasive orator, addressed the senate on behalf of Pyrrhus. The richly garbed senators on their raised benches looking down at him must have made it seem like Rome had hundreds of kings. He offered very generous peace terms, along with friendship and alliance, not only with the Pyrrhus but the greater Greek world. In addition, Pyrrhus would help Rome conquer the rest of Italy, as long as the freedom and independence of Tarentum was guaranteed. This was a tremendous offer, and indeed an honor, and as such the Senate was open to discussing it. They adjourned for the day, and senators fought for the honor of hosting Cineas at various dinner parties. The next day it looked like the deal was about to be accepted. However, just as they were about to vote, an old, frail, and blind man was helped into the chamber. His name was Appius Claudius, a former consul and hero of the Samnite Wars. In many ways he was to the Romans what Alexander the Great was to the Greeks. He said that Pyrrhus and the Greeks were not to be trusted, that Cineas should be sent away immediately, and that no peace negotiations could begin until Pyrrhus had left in Italy entirely. He gave a rousing speech and shamed the Senate, saying that they had forgotten that they were Romans. As he was carried out, the Senate unanimously voted to eject Cineas from Rome and reject the peace terms. When Cineas returned to the army, now capped less than a hundred miles from Rome, Cineas said to Pyrrhus, I fear we are fighting a hydra meaning the mythical creature with many hands. When you cut one off, two more grew in its place. It turned out that Pyrrhus had had little success in convincing many Roman allies or subjugated towns to his side, though with hindsight, the reason for this is plain. For some insane reason, he allowed his army free reign to pillage and plunder as they moved north, hardly a way to convince the locals you had come as liberators. I'm just gonna say it, our mushroom chomping friends may have played a huge role in this decision. Pierce's army on the move would have been like a swarm of locusts, ravaging the landscape for miles around the route of their march. A foraging, pillaging, plundering, raping, murdering swarm. The news of the strength of Rome's walls and defenses, the will of its people, coupled with Pyrrhus's failure to draw more support and his lack of a proper siege train, would have made continuing on to and attempting to besiege Rome a horrible mistake. In addition to this, a Roman envoy had just told Pyrrhus of a plot on his life by his physician, who offered to poison him in exchange for talents of gold and sanctuary in Rome. The envoy slipped the warning to Pyrrhus and said, Romans know how to achieve their goals thanks to their bravery and do not fight their enemies with trick, deceit, or ambush like you Greeks. 
When the physician was questioned and the plot was discovered to be true, Pyrrhus released all of his Roman prisoners in thanks. Not to be outdone, the Romans released citizens of various cities of Magna Graecia and all of Pyrrhus' scouts stayed captured. As you can imagine, a kind of chivalric respect was developing between the enemies. That didn't mean either side was letting its guard down for a second. And with that done, they were forced to settle in for the winter. In early spring 279 BC, Pyrrhus discovered that the two Roman consuls had been busy all winter raising new legions to the southeast of his position, in modern Apulia. Sensing that the Romans meant to trap his army on enemy ground, Pyrrhus decided to strike first and made directly for the massive force, his army again a moving whirlwind of destruction to their surroundings. As they marched, some few contingents of Rome's most implacable and not long subjugated flows did join Pyrrhus, but they were few in number and of questionable loyalty, thus making their utility in battle extremely limited. Though his commanders thought marching to directly to face the legions of Rome on what would be ground of their choosing dangerous in the extreme, the eagle of Epirus didn't care. He wanted this fight with the Romans over once and for all so that he could pursue his goal of raising an even more massive army from the grateful Greeks of Magna Graecia and take on the might of Carthage. Again, Pyrrhus's reliance on the words of the necromancers may have had more than a little to do with this. In any event, the hunt for the legions was on. Phalanx vs Legion Round 2 after this. If you're like me, you're always looking for great podcasts to listen to, and I have a great one for you. This month's Deep Into History podcast shout-out goes to Stay Tuned with Preet Bharara. Preet served as U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York and now has one of the best podcasts in the world. Preet Show is a wonderful resource for expert legal opinion on current events and informative interviews on a wide range of important subjects. Check out Stay Tuned with Preet by CAFE. Now, back to a series of very Pyrrhic events. I don't want you to get the impression that the Romans weren't shaken by the loss of Heraclea. They were. The survivors had told tales of the valor and skill of Pyrrhus and his companions, tales of strange spells, prayers, and powers of the necromancers blown out of all proportion in the retellings, and of course the terrifying war elephants who the Romans called Lucanian oxen in order to normalize them in their minds. In a strange coincidence, the battlefield had the two armies separated by a river much like that at Heraclea, though this time the terrain was vastly different. It was marshy and uneven ground, parts of it forested with copses of trees. In other words, horrible ground for a phalanx to fight on, and also pretty bad for cavalry. Both excelled in flat open ground, so it is hard to know why Pyrrhus chose to attack near the town of Asculum. The much more flexible manipular legions would have an advantage, but much of the marshy ground was bad for both sides. Ancient battles were often lost because of a much less obvious handicap. Perhaps he meant for the legions to get bogged down and lose their maneuverability, but knowing Pyrrhus it must have been that he was just eager to fight no matter what the train. The armies camped not far apart and spent a few days resting and sizing each other up. Word reached Pyrrhus that both Roman consuls were present, and that the consul Publius Decimius Mus had decided to make himself a devotion. This was a human sacrifice. He would be blessed by priests, his body painted and anointed, and then he would ride directly into the enemy lines at the beginning of battle, swinging his sword and dying in combat for the glory of Rome. This was supposed to bring the favor of the gods to the side of the Romans and deny their favor to the enemy for the duration of the battle. This ritual was only performed in a case of extreme emergency when Rome absolutely had to win. There is another reason that the consul Moose may have been so ready to sacrifice himself though it was something of a tradition in his family. He was the man who had killed Megacles after he had switched armor with his friend and king in order to draw the attention of the Romans' best warriors. Pyrrhus knew this and had sworn to kill the consul to avenge his dead friend. Moose knew that he was a dead man, so why not inspire the army and gain the favor of the gods in a devotion? At least his death would mean something. Pyrrhus sent word that if Moose tried it, he would be pulled off his horse and face days of torture. The other consul, Sulpicius Severio, replied for the shock to silence Moose. The Romans need no devotio to defeat you. The numbers were evenly matched. Both sides had just over 40,000 men. 
the sources say that the Romans had prepared a new unit of 300 war wagons with fire and rope weapons as an anti-elephant force. They were more likely 60 or so light chariots, very fast and agile, some equipped with a grapple and rope to tangle the elephant's legs to trip them, and others with missile weapons to harass the giant creatures and the drivers, and finally some with ranged fire weapons, probably thrown torches or fire arrows. The fact that they put such effort into these unorthodox weapons should tell us that they feared the charge of the war elephants greatly. We know Pyrrhus got word of the chariot somehow, or perhaps he had predicted that the Romans would have come up with some response to his precious elephants because he placed most of his skirmishers with them as a screening force. Perhaps in response to the uneven ground, perhaps because he did not trust the quality of the allied troops, or even as an answer to the Roman maniple, he broke his phalanx into blocks and between them placed his allied units. He put the cavalry on the flanks as before, but he kept his companions to the rear. He and they would fight up and down the line wherever they were needed most. This way, if the allies wavered, they would quickly have the eagle of Epirus and his wind fighting at their sides. When the lines of infantry came together after the two devastating Pelum thrones, the fighting became incredibly fierce and bloody. The Roman cavalry kept their long spears pointed and fought as stationary units, which largely negated the lightning-quick hammer blows of the in-and-out charging Empire cavalry. Wherever the fighting was most brutal, Pyrrhus was there, leading the counterattack himself. However, not even he could be in all places at once. The Romans fought with desperate ferocity. After the loss at Heraclea, the honor of Rome was at stake. Each maniple was eager to be the one to break the enemy line. Many did come close a few times, but before long they were pushed back by Pyrrhus. Not wanting the fight to go on as long as Heraclea, Pyrrhus called for the elephants to charge relatively early. Once in sight, the Romans launched their chariots at them. The battle that followed was the final inspiration for George Lucas's Battle of Hoth in Empire Strikes Back. With the chariots launching cables and hooking the elephant's legs, desperately circling them, hoping they would trip, like Luke and Rogue Squadron tripping the Imperial walkers. The chariot attack was even less successful than the rebel speeders. The boggy ground greatly slowed down the chariots, and Pyrrhus's slingers and archers made short work of them. The war elephants scattered the Roman cavalry and crashed into the legions. Within minutes, the legions were in full fright from the battlefield, quickly pursued by his Thessalian cavalry. Just as Pyrrhus and the heavier Macedonian cavalry was forming up to execute a charge and fully rout the Romans, word of the inconceivable came. Their camp, miles behind the lines, was under attack. You see, a few Roman allied units had been late to the battle, and while marching to meet the legions had come upon the lightly defended enemy camp. For an ancient army, its camp held everything of value. All their food, spoils, gold, slaves, and supplies. This was a disaster, so instead of charging down and destroying the fleeing legions, Pyrrhus was forced to send his cavalry and elephants in a desperate charge to stop the destruction of their camp. Though in time to stop the pillaging and recover most of the gold that was looted, the attackers succeeded in destroying all his war supplies, massive amounts of food, weapons, replacement armor, and precious maps. A disaster by any metric. After the battle, a tally was made of the casualties. There were 6,000 Roman dead to Pyrrhus's 3,550. Almost all of Pyrrhus's best friends and officers were dead. An allied commander congratulated Pyrrhus who said, one more such victory and we are undone. This phrase became famous throughout the Asian world and gave birth to our modern saying, a Pyrrhic victory, meaning a victory that cost so much, it may as well have been a defeat. Pyrrhus must have been bitterly lamenting his decision to come to Italy in the days following the battle when two envoys arrived from very different places. One from the nobles of Macedonia, offering him the crown if he would return with them to Macedon with his army and defeat a massive horde of barbarian Gauls that were ravaging the countryside. The next plea was from the kingdom of Syracuse in Sicily, begging him for help against the might of Carthage, who was even now besieging the city. They made it clear that the crown could, be, could well be his if he aided them. In addition, the Tarentines who were there to witness these offers protested that Rome was not yet defeated. 
telling the disparate parties that he needed the night to think and consult the gods before he would give them their decision. Retiring to his tent, he had many things to consider. He had pledged his support against the Romans, but with his supplies destroyed, he had no way of pushing his advantage. Not to mention the fact that he would require massive reinforcements from Epirus to replace his phalangines and officers. If he went to Macedonia, he could reinforce on his way through Epirus, and if victorious against the barbarian hordes, he could once again claim the crown of his illustrious cousin, Alexander the Great. Or should he venture into the unknown and risk everything for the dream he had long had of confronting the might of Carthage with the cities of Sicily behind him? He had never fought the Carthaginians, but they surely could be no more difficult than the legions of Rome. He prayed that night to Zeus, his forefathers, Apollo and Athena, and in the morning he went to the envoys and gave them his decision. If you're enjoying this episode, and I know you are, please go to patreon.com slash deep into history and pledge your support. In this month's Patreon-only episode, We Go Deep as Pyrrhus takes on an empire, earns the eternal enmity, and is hunted by the cult of the war god, survives assassination attempts, single combats, and faces the might of Rome for a final and decisive time. Join me in an amazing adventure with the Eagle of Epirus and discover more about this amazing figure, the last hero, this month, only on Patreon. Thank you so much for listening to Deep Into History. I want to apologize. Mid- halfway through the podcast, I began to lose my voice. I really hope you liked this episode. It took a lot of research, but I loved every second of it. Please leave a review on iTunes. It really helps other people find the show. You can follow me on Twitter, at Deep Into History, and your ga- get your daily blast from the past, ask me questions, or just chat. I want to thank this month's Patreon subscribers, JoJo, as well as Tracy Simpson. Thank you so much for your support. And as always, my friends, nothing but the best to you and yours. I truly look forward to the next time we go deep. Take care.